Oh. I, I loved him and I lost him and somebody took him and nothing's been done. I don't, I don't know what happened. He, he met up with Hannah. That's basically, that's the last time we saw David. Look, I, I think that the fact that within the first couple of days we had no firm line of inquiry, I knew that it was going to be a challenging case. David had probably had his spinal cord severed in the first blow and that he had been rendered completely useless. For some homicides, they can be uh, extremely brutal attacks and there may, in some cases, be a, a clear purpose behind that. You know, it may be about sending a message. I'm Nicole Hogan, and this is 8 Minutes, the unsolved murder of David Breckenridge. Nobody dies over two ecstasy pills and a couple of lines of coke. That's a very personal thing, to attack someone's head. So whenever a boy gets drunk at the pub, they punch each other's face. It's a very emotional thing. They don't punch each other's bodies. How could someone hate Dave that much? We wanted answers, yeah, straight away. And they didn't come. That was something I had to come with to grips to because I knew enough about police process that they're going to trace back steps and that I spoke to Dave at whatever time that that probably they were the first person that they needed to rule out and I was like, I'm a fucking suspect in a murder case. I just have to say, I hope you go to hell. Stephen and Karen Breckenridge should be wishing their son David a happy 29th birthday today. Instead, they're searching for his killers. Anyone with information is urged to call Crime Stoppers. Samantha Armitage, 7 News. I think the lasting legacy for me out of this is that, you know, anything can happen to anyone. And that's a pretty scary way to move through the world, that at any moment anything can happen to anyone. I think before this I just thought if you were good, you know, good stuff would happen. Turns out that's not true. I don't want to die not knowing what happened to David. This is a special investigation by The Daily Telegraph. To help us catch a killer, go to dailytelegraph.com.au. Five days ago, The Daily Telegraph launched a special investigation into the murder mystery of David Breckenridge. Between 11.52pm and midnight on August 10, 2002, 28-year-old David Breckenridge was murdered, stabbed 24 times as he walked along the Pacific Highway in St Leonard's. Because of our investigation, the person who found David's body speaks out for the first time about what she saw. Earlier on in the day, so it was was a Saturday, um, and earlier on in the day I had been um, driving back from the Blue Mountains with a friend. Helen McMullen was an occupational therapist. She was 39 years old when her life was about to change profoundly. And as I looked across to the lanes going in the opposite direction, I saw that there was a dog that um, looked as though, or there was an ac- a car accident. There was a lot of people there. There were cars there, and there was a dog that was had was obviously in distress. So to me, it looked as though it was dying, or it was um, had, it was injured in some way. And I can just remember that really everyone was occupied with the cars and things, but there was no one actually paying any attention to the dog. And I'm a bit of an animal lover, and I. We couldn't stop. I mean, we were heading in the opposite direction, but that was one thing that I believe in some way might have primed me and made me maybe a little bit more sensitive, I suppose, to 
what occurred later on. When I had um, gone to the party and when I was driving home along the highway um, through St Leonard's, that and in, in reflection, I suppose, I think that was one of the things that ran through my mind that when I saw this form on the ground in a laneway, it made me think of that, that I was going to stop this time, that this was something that I was going to go ahead and attend to. Because Helen was heading in the opposite direction, she quickly made the decision to turn off the highway and double back to where she saw the body. My other thought was that, you know, this is someone who's on the road, um, someone's going to swing through that lane, they're going to run them over, and I needed to do something about getting them off the road, whether that was just call the police or just see what was happening. So I went past the laneway, I took the next left and then the next left again, and the next left again, and I remember I parked up on the, there was a sort of a little bit of a rise there, and I walked down towards... Um, towards David and probably one of the first things that I saw was just the amount of blood um, that was on the road and I knew then that this was critical and that this wasn't just someone who'd had you know an excess of drink and had you know collapsed on the road or something so that was that was my big alert really to to realise that this was much bigger and and um, more critical than what I initially thought. It has been almost 16 years since the brutal attack, but there are certain details Helen will never forget. I knew that he'd lost, I mean, just the, the amount of blood, the, the blood was really from the tip of his head or from like his shoulder really, right past his feet so there was a good you know six feet of sort of streams of rivulets of um of blood going past david that i knew were vast amounts of blood you know i knew that because i work in health you know i know that you can't lose that amount of blood and you know for something for that not to be important but the thing is is he was he was clean though like he wasn't he wasn't disrupted, he wasn't, I couldn't see where the blood was coming from, you know, he didn't have messy hands or he, there wasn't blood smeared over his face or, I mean, he was laying face down, but there was nothing to really sort of indicate where that blood had actually come from. And I, I remember that that was one thing that really was quite confusing when he was then, when the, when the Ambos got there, that that was one of the things that it took me a while to sort of register and I suppose sort of think through about how he must have lost that but where where those injuries occurred because he really was he was clean on the front of him you know when they picked him up and started to to do what they needed to do you know and had him so that he was face up there really wasn't there was nothing that really indicated how he'd lost that blood or what had sort of happened to him. He was just very pale and that was it, you know. So there wasn't, there was no marks on his back, like, there, you know, his clothes. 
Are you ready to get an inside look at crime from someone who has investigated some of Australia's worst crimes? It was like Aladdin's cave. The luminol found bloodied footprints and bloodied handprints on a wall. So it's yeah. just like a horror movie. Former homicide detective Gary Jubilant sits down with cops, crims, addicts, victims, small-time cheats, and big-town lawyers as they tell their incredible stories. My house got raided. Next thing you know, I got bail refused. Next thing you know, I'm on a truck yeah. to Parkley Prison. Listen to I Catch Killers early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts today or wherever you get your podcasts. Everything was still in the position that you'd sort of almost think that just what would be if someone just fell from a standing position, you know, down onto the ground and had no protective reactions, like didn't put their hands out in front of them, didn't you know, kneel down first of all to go and lie down, didn't reposition themselves, you know, when they ended up on the ground. So that that struck me as just the position of his body as when he'd gone down, when he'd landed, you know, he hadn't made any, any adjustments to himself. His jacket was still, you know, on his back, his, his, um, his messenger bag was still across his back as well too. It wasn't... You know, the, the flap of it wasn't up. It didn't look as though that um, anyone had even touched it all. So when he landed, it really didn't look as though anyone had done anything to him at all. He landed there and he lay as is. Helen says she remembers the faces of the people who were standing around where David's body was lying. And it wasn't until later on, until the ambulance um, had turned up and so of course there were the ambos there and there were the couple who had stopped in the car and then there was two other people as well too who um, who just seemed to be present and I don't know where they really came from as such it was almost one of those things that you know they were there uh, they were not there and then they were there. Helen explains the description of two of the men who were watching on as the ambulance took David's body away. I come up from a, an Indian background, as in my dad's side of the family, so I I suppose I'm a little bit more um, just aware maybe of Indian features and things and so too, and that was probably one of the things that I remember looking at the two of them. They both had, both had hoodies on, just, you know, something very sort of plain and simple, just like a um, sloppy joe, you know, a jacky sort of thing, you know, with just with their hoods. Um, on us all too and if I think about it you know it was August it was you know in the middle of the night so it was sort of a little bit cool as all too and one was a little bit taller than the other not you know not six foot but probably I don't know five seven or something like that um, and the other one was a bit shorter than that um, and I just remember to me they their facial features they to me they looked Indian they weren't it wasn't a really dark skin colour but it certainly wasn't really light either so it was probably sort of somewhere in between. Police have been unable to identify those two men. According to Detective Leggett, the six-pack of VB that David was carrying was found on the ground next to him. But that's not what Helen saw. She describes what stuck out to her about the crime scene. I, I just find that so bizarre actually because I... You know, because I did have a lot of time there really to be able to, you know, and there was things that I just picked up on. And as I said, it is one of those things that probably struck me as as the, the 
biggest one was the fact that David's position, you know, when he was lying down on the ground, I could see that he had just absolutely collapsed and he hadn't moved again. There was another thing that the, he had a bad cut on the back of his hand, I think it was, as well, too, and I'm sure it was his left hand. And I remember thinking that he must have then gone ahead and um, tried to defend himself. And that was the only cut that I could see, just, you know, as I said, nothing else. Then there was also the beer, and the beer was on... So if I'm, if I'm facing the laneway and I'm standing on the highway, the beer was over on the right-hand side. And it looked as though it was on just a small sort of um, low brick fence, so probably all of about sort of a foot high. And it, it really looked as though someone had purposely and casually placed that beer. So it hadn't been knocked over, it hadn't been dropped, it hadn't been taken, it hadn't... And I just, it just seemed odd to me to have this, this beer there. For almost 16 years, Helen admits that she often racks her brain going over what she saw and if she can remember any detail that would help find David's killer. Yeah. Look, I mean, there's, I, I think one of the things, too, is, is what gets me is, is... And I don't know whether this is what other people find as well, too, who've you know, maybe been through something where there's that really sort of heightened feeling of emotion that, you know, you just, um, that high level of arousal, you know, is this that, to me, you don't really see it in this sort of, you know, fluid, um, continuous, moving sort of, um, you know, movie or whatever. It's almost like there's a lot of stills in a way that are sort of joined together and there's parts of it that, you know, I've concentrated on and I've been oblivious to it, to anything else. Like, you know, for example, when, um, you know, when those two, um, you know, characters at the end with hoods on turned up, you know, I mean, you know, you'd sort of think that maybe I, you know, would have seen them walking up the road or where they sort of come from or, um, or, you know, as I'd, uh, gone into the laneway, you know, would I have noticed anything if, if anything was around? Was, you know, what was the, what was the surrounding like? You know, there's those sorts of things I sort of think that um, I find that, that I've co- obviously concentrated just on certain parts of it um, throughout that experience and that's been... Um, as much as I could sort of cope with or much as I could remember and focus on, you know, and so sometimes I sort of think, yeah, could I have been more help then to, you know, if I'd been a little bit calmer or if I'd um, understood what was happening so that I just could have described, you know, if there was anything around that maybe just escaped me. Helen says she didn't think twice about covering David with the crocheted blanket she had in the back of her van. I suppose my reasoning for going ahead and just covering him was just purely just for, um, I don't know, I suppose concern for him really more than anything. Yeah, look, I've got a feeling I took the blanket off. Um, I think I did um, in preparation for them coming along. As the blanket now awaits forensic testing by the police, Helen is hopeful some answers might be found, of which she has many. What happened there? And, and, and that seems to be, you know, I, I come back to the beer often because I think that's 
the thing that just seems so odd and his position on the ground, that seems so odd. And the fact that he had the cuts on the back of his hands, that seems so odd. And maybe it's only because I've only focused on those three things, you know, and they just seem so important to me. The impact on Helen has been immense. She says being with David that night was the catalyst for her now working in palliative care. You know, I, I have a bunch of people. Every Most of the time I, I work with, you know, as I said, I work with people who are dying and I always find that those are the sort of people I just, there's a little, you know, just a part sort of in my heart. I sort of, you know, it's a bit of a, bit of a sacred spot, you know, where they sort of sit there that they, you know, hang on. And, um, you know, David's just, yeah. He's just um, in there as well. <laughs> so it's, look, it's fine. As I said, you know, I'm really quite okay. I think I realised just what my sort of role was there, and I, I and you know what, I feel very privileged that I got to be just there with him, even just having some idea, and I think for those parents, some idea of just who, what had actually happened at that time, I think maybe it would just give them that, just that element of peace in that not having to think about what happened there. If anyone listening now knows anything about what happened to David, please contact Crime Stoppers on 1800 000. I'm Nicole Hogan, and this is 8 Minutes, the unsolved murder of David Breckenridge. To help us catch a killer, go to dailytelegraph.com.au. The podcast Faith on Trial looks into Hillsong, both in Australia and the U.S., and takes both the listener and hosts on unexpected twists and turns in the story of Brian Houston and the singing preachers. There are two incidents involving Pastor Brian. The Australian journalists uncovered a litany of alleged criminal behavior in the megachurch. Financial gifts were being given to the leaders of the church. Listen to Faith on Trial Hillsong ad-free on Crimex Plus us on Apple Podcasts today or wherever you get your podcasts.